How many of you have played soccer or like soccer? Are you, do you know what the, is considered the greatest goal in the history of soccer? Yes. Who said that? Was that you, Corey? You knew. But let me tell you the story of the hand of God. It happened six minutes into the second half of the World Cup quarterfinal match between Argentina and England in 1986. On the Argentinian team was one that was considered perhaps the second greatest um, soccer player in the history of the game. Pele is considered the GOAT, the greatest of all time, and Maradona is probably considered the second greatest of all players. Well, the ball came near the goal, and Maradona went up for the goal, as did the British goalkeeper, whose name was Peter Shilton. And in the air, it appeared as if Maradona headed the ball, and it went right into the goal. But, in fact, he hit the ball with his hand, and the referee didn't see it. And so, of course, it was a goal. Maradona later said his teammates saw it. They saw he hit it with his hand, and you said, come, come, congratulate me, because they were just standing around expecting it to be nullified. Come, come, you got to celebrate, so they think it's a real goal, and they didn't. But the goal still counted because the referee never saw his hand. So after the, the, the match was over and at the press conference, they asked him about that goal, and this is what Maradona said. Un poco... Con la cabeza de Maradona y otro poco que la mano de Dios. With a little bit of the head of Maradona and a little bit the hand of God. That's how he attributed the goal. And it's called the goal of the century because after that match, which they won, Argentina went on to win the World Cup. And so the greatest goal in the history of the game of soccer is called the hand of God, which should have been illegal because the referee never saw that Maradona hit it with his hand into the goal. And our title today, of course, is The Hand of God, because that's what we're going to see in this chapter, as um, Regina just told the children about the hand of God. Now, um, the hand of God is a very important phrase. Um, If you went to Rome and to the Sistine Chapel and you saw that famous hand of God, you know, the creation of Adam, there's the hand of God. Um, There's a a constellation way out there somewhere in space that's called the hand of God because it looks like it. It's it's a pulsar out there in space somewhere. A very common phrase, the hand of God. And in our text today, which is the fifth chapter of Daniel, We're going to play off the word hand. First of all, we're going to be um, brought to hear about a person whose hands were very dirty. In fact, God wants us to have clean hands. This man has has very dirty hands. And because his hands are so dirty, he is going to find himself face to face with the hand of God, as you know, writing on the wall. And when he sees that handwriting on the wall, as Regina told us, he was scared to death. In fact, literally, it means he soiled his pants, is what it means. He soiled his pants because he's terrified, and he makes a handsome offer. If anyone can read that writing, he will give them an incredible um, uh, reward. But they can't. And so what happens, the queen mother actually calls in a handwriting expert who happens to be Daniel, 
And the main thing he says is you, King Belshazzar, have been biting the very hand that is feeding you. And as a result, the end is at hand. And then the hand of God's judgment falls, not only on Belshazzar, the king, but also on the whole kingdom of Babylon, which comes to an end. We know the very date, the very day that all of this happens. It's well recorded, not just in the Bible, but in the writings of many, many other historians. So we know this one very accurately. So if you go with me to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to deal with the, the, the hand of God. But let me give you a very brief Babylonian history lesson. The Babylonian Empire, one of the greatest empires in the history of the world, had only seven kings. Nebuchadnezzar was the second. He's the second. He's called Nebuchadnezzar the second because he's the son of his father, Nebuchadnezzar the first, who was the founder of the Babylonian kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar the second was the greatest ruler by far, and he had a 43-year reign. And it was during almost his entire reign that Daniel served as the prime minister to this great, great king, Nebuchadnezzar. We've met him over the previous several years. Well, when he died, he was replaced by his son, Amel Marduk, which if you read in the Bible, one of his other names is Evil Merodach. That's what you find in, in the Kings and in the book of Jeremiah. And he did not have a very long reign, only two years, and he was executed. Uh, he, was, he was killed in... in um, while he was in um, uh, power. And then he was replaced by a man named Nereg Glasser, who, who reigned for about five or six years. And we don't know how he died, but when he died, he was replaced by his son, who was beaten to death and only lasted two or three months as the king. And the one who had him killed was a man by the name of Nabonidus. Nabonidus was a king who had a long reign, but he found himself fighting against the Persians on a number of battles. And in fact, because he was a general out fighting the Persians so often, he decided to reign together with his son as co-regents, two kings at the same time, Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar. Now, for many years, up until maybe the last 50 or 60 years, we thought the Bible, many scholars thought, well, we don't know who this Belshazzar is. There is no King Belshazzar. The Babylonian records have now been shown that he has, he ruled as a co-regent. It's crystal clear. His father was outside of Babylon fighting against the Persians and Belshazzar was the king resident in the capital, holding the capital together. So you had two kings, but of the same family at the same time. And that's a very, very common thing. Well, when our story begins, Nabonidus, the king, is out fighting against the Persians. Belshazzar is the king inside the incredible city of Babylon. And he is, it is being surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. Now, the city of Babylon is 3,000 acres inside a double wall with a moat. The wall's um, 350 feet high. Higher by far than any building anywhere around here. The walls, wide enough for chariots to have races on top of the walls. With a river running right through, incredibly regarded, 100 towers on the wall. A hundred of them. So it was an incredibly well-fortified city. The best fortified in the world by far. Nothing even close to it. And so, of course, the king, Belshazzar, felt very, very safe even though his city was under siege. And by the way, inside that city, they had food 
for many, many, many years. No lack of water, no lack of food inside a beautiful, magnificent city so the people outside the walls can do whatever they want and they cannot have any effect on the people inside. Huge city, extremely well uh, guarded and impregnable, sort of like the unsinkable Titanic. And so now the text begins with Belshazzar, who is partying while the Persians and the Medes are surrounding his city. He's throwing a great big party and his hands are dirty. Here's what it says. Verse one, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the cold the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Belshazzar, here's the co-regent, one of the two kings at the same time of the Babylonian empire, whose name means Bel, one of the Babylonian gods, protect the king. That's what his name means. He is the co-regent, as I said, with Nabonidus, the other king. And he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the great, great king. When does this happen? We know the exact day, October the 12th, 539 BC. And by the way, dates are very important. I remember some time ago reading a book called The Looming Tower about um, bin Laden and the 9-11 tragedy in our country. And uh, I didn't know that he didn't just pick 9-11 out of the hat, by the way. That's an extremely important date in Muslim history where the, the, the Islamic hordes were ready to take over all of Europe from the east. And they were stopped at Vienna. When? September 11th. And because of that date, that's why it was picked to be the date when the, when the Twin Towers would come down. It was not just some random date at all. Well, this is not just some random date either. It is told by Herodotus, Xenophon, it's told in the Bible, it's told by many different historians. We know the exact date. And of course, it's very well recorded in the Persian documents because it's the day when they took over the city of Babylon. So we know when it took place. And by the way, this is 66 years after we met Daniel in chapter 1. So how old is Daniel? He's about 80 years of age. That's how old he is. And he is probably in, in retirement, probably living in the, well, we know living in the great city of Babylon as a, probably with a very good retirement package because he was the prime minister under multiple kings and especially Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's living there at this time, and Belshazzar decides to throw a party. Now remember, a party while his city is being besieged. Why? Why would you do that? Well, one of the reasons he did it is because he thought there was no threat. Why not have a party? We got plenty of food. We got plenty of wine. We can do whatever we want. We don't care who's outside our gates. We're safe. But maybe, maybe 
the people were afraid because every day they could look around these walls. They could go on those walls and look outside and they saw these armies surrounding their entire city. Maybe they were afraid. And so what's a way to allay the fears of your people? Throw a party. So he throws a big party and he probably wanted to communicate through his party. We can trust the gods of Babylon to protect us. Besides, we have these great, great walls to protect us as well. And so they were feasting, though they should have been fasting. As they were feasting, Belshazzar said, my grandpa, he, he conquered Jerusalem back in 597. He, he took many of the, the, the gold and silver goblets from the temple in Jerusalem of that God of, of those Jewish people that we brought into exile here. He took those, let's, let's drink from those. And so they brought in these gold and silver goblets that were used by the Jewish people in Solomon's temple, which would have been incredibly valuable. Now, Nebuchadnezzar brought those. He's the one who took them from the temple, but he never used them for this kind of purpose. And Belshazzar, for whatever reason, maybe he wanted to say, our God is the God that's superior to all gods. Even the gods of these Hebrew people and people like Daniel, ours are the superior gods. Let's drink from the goblets of the gods that we have defeated. And so they were partying with the finery from the people of Israel. And so it's a multiplication of sins here you have a very godless man taking holy vessels of the true God, turning them into a sacrilege and a drunken, probably orgy with the worship of lifeless idols. You combine all those things together. I guess you could call it wine, women, and wrong instead of wine, women, and song. Here's a man with incredibly dirty hands, but he thinks he's secure. You see, one of the... the truisms of life is oftentimes a fall is preceded by a false sense of security. This is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Because in the long run, God will not permit sacrilege. He'll let it go on for a while, but he's not going to let it go on for long. By the way, are there ways that we harbor a false sense of security? Security of our government, maybe of our finances, of our occupation, of our health, whatever it may be. I think all of us are wise enough to know that none of those are sure apart from God alone. Well, now the hand of God is going to appear. Not Maradona's hand of God, but the real hand of God. And by the way, in 1899, there was a team of archaeologists that were... um, uh, doing work on the ruins of Babylon, the very ones. And they didn't find the writing on the wall, by the way, but they did find the walls. They found the walls of the throne room and they're white plastered. And in the text of scripture, we'll go about to read, it's going to say that there was a lampstand nearby. I love the details of the Bible. They're often eyewitness details. So we know the walls were white because we have the plaster still today. And there on this white wall, something called the hand of God is going to appear. This is verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall 
Near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. That's the nice way, as I said, of saying it. Didn't want to make people grossed out too much. But uh, Tony Evans said literally he lost control of his bowels out of fear. That's what happened. So he sees the handwriting, and he is scared to death. Well, why? Well, be sure your sin will find you out. And here God found him out. And uh, what God is about to do is going to give him a, a, a warning of what's about to happen. And um, I suppose there are times in our lives, if you can think back, can you think of any time in your life when not God didn't write on a plaster wall, but he wrote clear enough that you knew he was trying to give you an advanced warning about something, maybe to change the direction of your life. Maybe you messed up in a smaller way and you got a warning from God to to help you not go down farther into that road, which is going to destroy your life. Sometimes we could call that the hand of God because God in his mercy tries to warn us. And when the king saw this handwriting on the wall, of course, he's completely scared. So what does he do? Well, he's got a bunch of glad handers and people who uh, can interpret uh, strange mysteries. And so, of course, he calls them in. Here's what verse 7 tells us. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple. That's the royal color. Will have a gold chain placed around his neck. That's like some kind of special honor from the king. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom, which means he will be the prime minister. King number one, Nabonidus. King number two, Belshazzar. Number three is whoever can read those writings. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale because his nobles were baffled. Now, by the way, they could read the writing. I could read the writing because it is very clearly three Aramaic words, which was Aramaic was the word, was the language like English is in our world today. French used to be the lingua franca of the world. Aramaic was the lingua franca of the world back in this time. Everyone could read Aramaic and the words are Aramaic words. They could read the words but they had no idea what they meant. So the problem is not in the reading of the words, the pronunciation of the words. The problem is, what in the world do these words mean? And so he called in his glad handers to try to make sense out of the writing, and they couldn't. Um, You think the kings of Babylon would get a clue. Don't you think after a while? Time after time, they've been called in by the king to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream or to interpret a dream or to read the handwriting on the wall, and every time they fail. So fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, you're an idiot. So um, at some point, the kings of Babylon should realize these wise men are really stupid, but they don't get the message. 
Um, by the way, has your trust been broken maybe multiple times and you keep coming back for more? I remember one precious woman I knew. Um, she had a, had, a, had a couple of marriages and I, 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 she came to me because she was suffering because a, a man was uh, ill-treating her. And I thought, that is wrong. That's just wrong. Never should that happen. So I asked her about her past life. She said, well, I, my first marriage, my husband abused me. I said, oh, that's so sad. My second marriage, my husband abused me. Now she was with a third guy abusing her. I certainly don't blame her. But, you know, when you've been hurt so badly over and over again, and, and yet we still keep going back for more, we do that as people. Why? Why don't we... We wise up when, when, when we've done something probably wrong and it's resulted in great, great, great pain. Why don't we learn? Many times we don't. The kings of Babylon never learned. They never learned their lesson. They should have learned that these wise men are not that wise. These advisors don't know what they're saying, but they didn't learn it. But there was a handwriting expert who lived in Babylon. And that's the one who's called for next. This is verse 10. The queen. And by the way, the queen here is probably what's called the queen mother. We don't know exactly who it is. This could be Nebuchadnezzar's wife. That's unlikely. It could be his daughter. But it's probably some relation to Belshazzar, but not one of his wives because they're drunk. (laughs) They're at the party. This is probably the queen mother, which is a very lofty position in any kingdom. I know that from the kingdom I used to live in, in, in Africa, in Swaziland. The queen mother is kind of rules the roost. So there's a queen mother who's not drunk like the rest of these people at the party. And she hears what's going on from probably someone who told her. And she springs into action. Here's what happens. The queen... Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, maybe they're screaming, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel? one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah. I have heard that uh, the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So now the handwriting expert is called in. Now, by the way, it's obvious that the queen mother knew about Daniel, but it's equally obvious that Belshazzar did not. What a nutcase. I mean, come on. Here is a man who was 
so outstanding. It's like the greatest prime minister your kingdom has ever had who served your grandfather, the greatest king your kingdom ever had with incredible distinction, and you don't even know who he is. They put him out to pasture somewhere. And so Belshazzar does not know about him. And by the way, as I said, Daniel's about 80 years of age now, probably in semi-retirement. But it took a wise old woman. And by the way, it's a theme you find in the Bible. Have you seen it? Here you have Abigail, a wise woman with an idiot husband. His name is Nabal, which means fool. She's married to a fool, and that fool's about to get her killed. And of course, she speaks up and saves her life and the life of her family. Not Nabal's, by the way. You have Esther. Esther, the, the wise woman married to a, a bit of a foolish king named Xerxes, and she saves the kingdom and saves her people as well. And then in the New Testament, remember Pilate's wife? Pilate is, is presiding over Jesus' trial and about to condemn him to death, and the Pilate's wife says, hey, Pilate, don't do it. Don't do it. This is an innocent man. Don't touch him. And of course, Pilate doesn't listen to his wife, and the rest is as we call history. I wonder what kind of reputation Daniel had. Um, I wonder um, if in life of most people, the mud's going to hit the fan at some point. Bad things are going to happen in all of our lives. And that's going to happen not only to the people outside the church, but inside the church as well. But I wonder when the mud hits the fan with people who don't know God, will they think of us? Will we have rubbed shoulders with them enough? Will we have demonstrated godly character and goodness enough that they will say, hey, you know, I sure don't like old goody two-shoes, but, you know, maybe we ought to talk to them about God. Daniel was that man, goody two-shoes, the old goat who's now retired, who can reveal mysteries from God. So Daniel's called in, and he's made this incredible offer. He can be prime minister again and be the richest guy around if he can read the handwriting on the wall. What a wonderful task. And what's Daniel going to do? He's going to chew out the king. Now, he's 80 years of age. He's an old goat. Uh, maybe he doesn't care. He says, if I die, I die. But the main definition of a prophet is someone who speaks the truth to people in power. Now, as you know, People in power rarely have people who tell them the truth. People in power are usually surrounded with people who are yes men and yes women who tell them what they want to hear because their position depends upon it. They're the worst kind of people to have around you many times. Here, Daniel is someone who is unafraid to speak the truth. Remember what he did to Nebuchadnezzar? He said, Nebuchadnezzar, you great king, you're an arrogant twit, and you're about to eat grass like a cow. Now, that'll get you killed. But this one is worse by far. So Daniel, typical Daniel, is going to say, you, Belshazzar, have spent your life biting the very hand that has given you life and this kingdom. And it's about to come to an end. You've been biting the hand that feeds you, which, of course, most people in our world do all the time. Here's what Daniel said. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, keep your junk. <laughs> At 80 years of age, he doesn't need more toys. He doesn't need a new Mercedes-Benz or chariot to ride around the, the walls. Keep your junk. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty. He 
he, comb- he, he dispenses with, oh, may you live forever, you wonderful idiot. He says, just your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot hear or see or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Now that will get you killed. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that? I, I, I remember, I think I got this one right. Some years ago, Mother Teresa, I think she's like 410. I think she's like this. She was meeting with President Clinton, as I recall, and they were talking about abortion. And I believe her, her words were something like this. If a mother can kill her own baby, nothing else matters. <laughs> she said that to the president of the U.S. <laughs> Thankfully, he didn't kill her, <laughs> but there's, there's a, uh, you don't do that. <laughs> you don't tell off a, a, a president. Well, of course, we can do that these days. But back then, you don't tell off a king unless you're Nathan, the prophet, points out, David, you are the man. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You're a liar. And David, with a good heart, repented. You have prophet after prophet, Jeremiah. Isaiah, Nathan, speaking the truth to people in power. And it's usually not pleasant. Some of them got killed. They say Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh. Wouldn't tolerate what he had to say. But here's Belshazzar listening to this. What did, what did Daniel say? He said, Nebuch- he said, Belshazzar, you saw. Because, by the way, he was, um, uh, Belshazzar was alive for about 18 years of Nebuchadnezzar's life. He's, he's beyond a teenager. He's a full-grown man. You saw what happened to your, 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 your grandfather. You saw him eating grass like a, like, a, like a cow. You saw it. You knew what happened to him. You, you, you knew what happened, and you knew why it happened, and you know what happened when he responded. You knew it. You have no excuse And then you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, the very Lord that your grandfather came to acknowledge as his Lord. You saw that. You knew that. And then what did you do? This true God that you knew was the true God, you took the holy objects from his temple and you defiled them with a drunken orgy. And then, like an idiot, you praised a bunch of metal sticks and stones as if they could do anything to help you. Who are you? 
You did not honor God. You sinned through disobedience and pride, though not ignorant. You were not ignorant. You defied God by desecrating the sacred vessels, and you praised inanimate objects as if they were God. You are a fool. Whoa, that's kind of tough. <laughs> but that's what he did. I guess a question we can ask ourselves is, are, are we like Belshazzar? Do we learn from the example of other people? Let's say a father and mother did some bad things and you, 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 you hurt. And your children know how much it hurt you and how difficult it was. And then they do the same thing. Or much better. We, we see what happened and we learn from that. Don't do that. It's painful. It hurts. It will hurt you. It will hurt other people. Don't do it. Do we learn? Belshazzar did not. He saw everything right in front of his eyes, right in front of his, in the palace with his grandpa. He knew all of it. And he saw the assassinations take place. He saw the executions. He saw all the bad things. He saw it. He had no reason not to follow the God of Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't do it. And Daniel points that out. And so now Daniel's going to read the handwriting on the wall. As I said before, everyone could read the words in Aramaic. Everyone knew what they were. Mini, mini, tikal, eupharsin. Three words, all in Aramaic. The first word repeated twice, tikal, and then eupharsin. Well, here's a, a joke from J. Vernon McGee. There was a man who was a foreigner in this country and was finally persuaded by his daughter to go to church although he had great difficulty understanding English. He agreed to go with his daughter, Minnie, on the Sunday. The preacher had unfortunately chosen for his text the account of the handwriting on the wall. Minnie, Minnie, Tickle, Eupharsin. As the, soon as the preacher mentioned this, the man grabbed Minnie, his daughter, by the hand and took her out of the church. Father, what in the world is the matter? She asked. With a very heavy accent, he replied, Did you hear what the preacher said? He said, Minnie, Minnie, come tickle the parson. You didn't get it. Minnie, Minnie, come tickle the parson. Oh, well, here's the real one. This is the inscription that was written, Minnie, Minnie, tickle farson. Here is what the words mean. Minnie, God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tickle, you have been weighed on the scales and found white wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It's three simple words in Aramaic. Um, they're, they're, they're all um, money terms. Mina, mina, shekel, and a half. And that's why the, um, the, 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 the wise guys of Babylon said, what is that? Those are just financial terms. But the first word is, is a number. Meaning means number. Number, number. Your number is up. Tikal means you do not measure up. And Parson or Perez to means to divide. Your kingdom is about to be divided. Your, your time is, you have been, you, you, you've been, your number is up. You did not measure up and your kingdom is about to be divided. That's what those words mean. By the way, Moses told us these words. Teach us, O Father, to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Obviously, Belshazzar thought he had many days because he's having a big party, but God's about to tell him, your days are over because the hand of God's judgment is about to fall.
Here's the last words of this chapter. Then Belshazzar commanded, uh, at his command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around the neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Oh, that's a real privilege. You know how much longer that kingdom's going to last? One hour. Prime minister for an hour. Sounds great. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Daniel received the reward he was promised and declined some reward. That very night, October the 12th, 539 BC, what happened, and this is told by multiple sources outside the Bible, what happened was Cyrus or Darius and Darius, they weren't dummies. They went upstream. Remember, this is on the uh, the Euphrates River. They went upstream. They had some man dam up the river upstream, and then they cut off the water going into the city. And then his soldiers, instead of breaching the walls, simply walked right under the walls through the dry riverbed and took over the city without a fight. No fight at all. And went and killed Belshazzar. And so the Babylonian kingdom came to an end. The city of Babylon was conquered in one day without a fight. And at the end of Belshazzar's reign, we now have the beginning of the Medo-Persian kingdom. Well, so what? What does it mean for us? Once again, we see, and we're going to see this a lot in the succeeding chapters in Daniel, that all great civilizations fall, all, no exceptions, certainly including our own, because every civilization tends to fall away from the principles of God, and when they do so, they will eventually face the judgment of God, which comes in many different forms, but that is an inevitability. But in conclusion, let's ask ourselves the following questions. Number one, are our hands clean or dirty? Do we play around with holy things? Belshazzar did. And it was very, very offensive to God. Do we play around with holy things? If so, our hands are dirty. Have we ever experienced a slap on the hands? Doesn't hurt. Just stings a little bit. A slap on the hands from God who is simply trying to teach us to follow his ways before something really bad happens to us. Do we heed his warning? Do we heed it when God gives us a slap? before we have to face something far, far worse. I plead with yourself and with myself, let's be sensitive to the slaps of God because they are for our good. Because those whom God loves, he disciplines. Why? Because he loves us. He doesn't want us to hurt even worse. Thirdly, have we ever encountered the handwriting of God on our hearts? God trying to communicate with us through his Holy Spirit, through his word, through other people. We, have, we often say is, is we have three great assets. We have the word of God, we have the spirit of God, and we have the people of God. And we even have people who aren't of God who can many times give us good advice. Do we listen? Do we listen to God's handwriting on our wall? And when we receive, quote unquote, handsome offers from the world, I'll give you purple clothing, I'll give you a, a gold around your neck, I'll make you the third highest position. Do we realize that's a bunch of hot air? And in our better judgment, realize how many of these perks are garbage. They're not worth anything. And how much do we sacrifice for stuff, for money, for position, for power? That doesn't really matter in the long term. 
And it's not one of the more important things of life at all. And are we people who bite the very hand that feeds us? Every single day, there's a hand that feeds us. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. And guess what he does? He does it. And then do we bite that very hand that every day, every day so well feeds us? And when we have experienced the good hand of God in our lives, which we do often, do we give thanks? And when God sends handwriting experts into our lives, people, friends, family, mothers, fathers, children, who say, watch out, or this is what God is trying to say, do we listen or do we just blow them off? And when God's hand of discipline falls, how do we perceive it? As if God is mad at us? Or God doesn't love us? Or that God is trying to conform us into the image of Jesus? How do we handle it? And most importantly, the most important thing of all, is how do we respond to the open-handed grace of God? And that's where we're going to turn now as we conclude this morning, is to the open-handed grace of God. What we're about to do as we celebrate communion is we're going to celebrate the open-handed grace of God. If I wanted to say open-handed, I would say the open-handed grace of God. Because there were two hands and two feet that were pierced for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities, not his, so that he could offer with those hands open-handed grace. Grace means God will bless us in ways we do not at all deserve. That's grace. Unmerited favor. We never earned it. We do not merit it. But God offers it freely. Because we're so forgetful, we don't tend to learn from the hand of God. He says, when you gather together, I want you often to stop, pause, stop, and consider afresh the offer of my grace that I've given to you. So when you take this bread and you drink from this cup, remember what I did when I died on the cross of Calvary for you. And so that's what we're about to do. So could I ask the elders, please, to come forward? And uh, they're going to serve you. And as they're coming forward, I'm going to, to give thanks for the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, we can, never, we can never say thank you enough for what you've done for us. It's impossible. We don't even understand it. That the very creator God of the universe would come down to this planet and live such a, a mean life so that you could die for our sins and open up heaven is a wonder too great to even fathom. We pray that you would help us today as we partake of these elements. We're, we're not sufficient ourselves, but you give us the Holy Spirit to help us to connect with what you've done. So may your Holy Spirit work powerfully now as we remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.